Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined by Ra Bert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. I wanted to, I, I just didn't want to do anything this time. Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, bro. How are you? Hello, Allison. Hey, it's the April Mailbag, and we're joined by Tim Byers. He's a senior analyst here at The Motley Fool. He's going to help answer your questions about dollar cost averaging, investing with options foolishly, and how to buy back into the market if you cashed out. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Tim, welcome to the show. Is this the first time you've joined us? This is the first time I've been on Motley Fool Answers, and I'm slightly offended. But now I'm really happy. Now I'm really happy because it's been a long time, and ne- but I, now I finally am on. I know. You are somebody now. Doesn't that feel good? You've it made does. it. It you does. It does feel good. Yeah. Like, I, I was, you know, sort of slugging along in the background, and now here I am. Yeah, yeah. Here you are. I'm so excited for you. This is a real honor for you, and I'm so I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, that's about, right. About that's right. For you, <laughs> that is so on point. Well no, done, Allison. Sure, it'll be worth the wait. We're honored to have you, Tim. Way, way back in the day, Tim and I used to do, do a show called Level. I think it's called Level Up. One Up. One Up. No, wait, one Level Up. up? One yep, up? it was One Up. No, it was One Up. Okay. Um, and it was about, inve- it was investing, but it was in like gaming, entertainment, yep. kind of like, it was, yep. it was fun. I would pitch a question and then Tim and Nate Alderman would just talk nonstop for about 30 minutes. And then I would yep. come in for the close. Yep. Um, that was a fun time. How many years have you been contributing to or writing for The Motley Fool? It's been a while now. It has. So December, 2003. So what, 17 years and some months. Wow. Wow. That's a good run. That's not a bad run. It's Here's not a bad run. 17 plus more um, into the future. As long as you'll have us, we'll have you. So, all right. Well, should we head into the questions? Let's yes. do it. All right. Our first question comes from Heidi. I am in my 40s and spent much of the early part of my career in the nonprofit and academic world. I moved to the private sector and now my income has tripled. I've always been diligent at saving for retirement. However, I have heard the rule is to have three times your income saved by your 40s. I was on track when I was making less, but now I am far behind according to that metric. How concerned should I be about catching up? It just seems so strange to go from on target with savings to way behind due to a big raise. Well, first of all, Heidi, congratulations on the raise. That's outstanding. Um, Heidi's referencing the savings guidelines we've highlighted on the show before as recently as last week. And the guidelines are provided by various firms, but probably the most well-known come from Fidelity. Uh, And Fidelity says that by age 40, you should have three times your household income saved in your retirement accounts. Assumes the retirement age is 67. You want to retire sooner, you should have more. Um, Heidi highlights one of the shortcomings of these guidelines and that they assume a relatively smooth earnings history, and also no major changes in the cost of your lifestyle. And they also presume that you'll need about 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement income after you retire. Um, So Heidi, if you don't change your lifestyle and you keep the same level of expenses you had before your new job, then your retirement is not only still on track, but you're even in better shape because now you'll be saving so much more. However, this isn't what most people do, right? Uh, You may have heard the saying, expenses rise to meet income, sometimes referred to as Parkinson's Law, named after uh, C. Northcote Parkinson, though I I personally actually couldn't find exactly where he said it. Um, But anyways, 
what happens when most people get a raise? They just increase their level of spending. And this actually can result in them falling farther behind in their retirement planning, as found in a Morningstar study called More Money, More Problems, How to Keep a Bigger Paycheck from Spoiling Retirement. And that study found that most people engage in lifestyle creep, right? They get a big raise, they just spend more money. The problem is, the more you increase the cost of your lifestyle, the more you increase the cost of your retirement because most people want to maintain their lifestyle when they quit work. Um, so Morningstar came up with this little formula. When you get a raise, spend twice your years to retirement. So if you're 20 years from retirement, you can spend 40% of your raise, but save the rest. All that said, Heidi's raise is so significant. You know, Her income has tripled. I'm not sure any rule of thumb will really capture her situation. Um, as long as she doesn't significantly increase her exp her expenses, I think she's going to be okay. But if she really wants to know how much she should be saving and how much she can safely spend, uh, I, I would say that she should use a few retirement calculators and maybe even pay a fee-only financial planner for an hour or two of time just to run the numbers for her. Our next question comes from Matt. My wife and I recently had a child and have found ourselves thinking more about the 529 plan and retirement. We recently received substantial bonuses, and while we are trying not to time the market like good fools, does it make more sense to dump 25000 that we have available into a 529 today with the assumption it'll grow about 8% a year to roughly $100,000 by the time she's in college, or do we use dollar cost averaging and put a few thousands in the 529 each year? A little background on our financial health. We max out our 401k contributions each year and have a six-month emergency fund and a down payment for a near-term home purchase. What should we do? Man, well, what a great problem to have. First of all, congratulations on, on the windfall and uh, just where you are financially. That's amazing. I think you're doing everything right here. My, I guess my answer is, why does it have to be just the 529 lump sum or dollar cost averaging? I mean, the one thing that's not mentioned in here is other options. Like, could you take, for example, um, you maybe put in $12,000 into the 529, which is a meaningful amount, and then you open a brokerage account. I mean, part of your college saving can be investing on your own in a taxable brokerage account. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, it, as long as you are not trying to get the money out in the next five years, doing tax-advantaged investing in a taxable brokerage account with a group of common stocks that you really believe in can be incredibly powerful. So, I think I'd counsel you, uh, Matt, to to look a little more broadly than just uh, centering in on the 529. Now, having said that, if you are going to do a 529 and we have them for, for our kids, it is wonderful to find a 529 that suits you. Fidelity has some really great options. Um, your state probably also has some really great options. We have 529s through Fidelity. We also have 529s through the state of Colorado. And those state of Colorado uh, 529s, which is where we live, um, those are tax advantaged uh, because you you get a little bit of a state kicker because you are investing in the state and I am a we are residents of the state so um, there there are plenty of options that you could explore but I think the one thing Matt that I, I would counsel you is to think a little broadly if you don't yet have a taxable brokerage account and you've got the wherewithal to stay in the game invest in some stocks over the very long term that might be a really powerful way to just amplify 
your savings for everything, including college. I'll just add that if uh, someone likes that idea of opening a brokerage account and getting away from the 529, but you still want that money for college, give the Coverdell a look. It's got a much lower contribution limit, just $2,000 a year, and it has some income limitations, although there's some ways around that. Uh, and you have actually up until May 17th of this year to contribute to a Coverdell for 2020. So some something else to think about if you want to sort of broaden beyond the 529. All right. Our next question comes from Justin. My wife and I have our first kid due in June, and I'm looking to start investing for her. I'd like to keep my options open in terms of use. If she wants to go to college, that's great. But if not, choose a trade, start a company, etc. I'd like the money available for that as well. I've looked at UTMA and UGMA so far and would like to get your take on the options out there. Uh, well, Justin, if you're not sure the money will be used to pay for college, then an UTMA or UGMA is worth considering. Um, just to talk a little bit about what those are. The UGMA came first, came out in the, in the 50s, stands for Universal Gifts to Minors Act. The UTMA came out about 30 years later and stands for Uniform Transfers to Minors Act. One big difference between the two is that UTMAs allow for more types of assets. UGMAs are generally limited to the stuff you'd find in your like IRA, like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. UTMAs can include things like real estate, art, maybe even cars. Um, and the other big difference is the age at which the kids get control of the money. With an UGMA, in most states, it's at age 18. With the UTMA, it can be older in many states, as old as 25 and a few. Um, most states offer both, though you have to settle for just the UGMA if you live in South Carolina or Vermont and in some of the U.S. territories. Um, there are also some, also some tax benefits. The first $1,100 of a child's unearned income is tax-free. Next, $1,100 is taxed at the child's rate, which is pretty low, but then anything beyond that is taxed as a parent's income. Uh, the downsides uh, are that these contributions are basically irrevocable. Once you put money into an UGMA or an UTMA, you can't take the money back and you can't change the beneficiary. Also, it's considered an asset of the child for financial aid purposes, which might reduce aid that is available when it comes time uh, for the kid to go to college. Um, also, the, the money has to be used for the benefit of the child. It could be education, summer camp, a uh, whole range of expenses, uh, but not for things like I don't know, video games, family vacations, things like that. And of course, once the kid reaches a certain age, the money becomes hers to do with as she pleases. If you're not comfortable with all those drawbacks, what you can do is actually just open a brokerage account in your name, manage it for your kid's benefit, and then gift the account when you feel she's ready. The downside to that is then you'll, you'll be responsible for the taxes on the income and the gains in the meantime. Um, and just one thing I want to point out about the college savings accounts, we just mentioned the Coverdell and the 529. And, and you're right to be concerned because if you don't use the money for qualified higher education expenses, the money will be taxed and penalized. But I do want to make sure you know that it's just the growth that is taxed and penalized. So let's say you contribute $20,000 to a 529 or a Coverdell, it grows to 30. You can take that 20 out that will be tax and penalty free. It's the 10,000 that will be penalized a tax. And it, up to that point, it grew tax deferred, which is also available. So uh, I don't want to downplay those taxes and penalties, but I do want you to understand that it's not on the whole amount in the account, just on the growth. Our next question comes from Jordan. I'm currently an employee at Amazon. While I love the work that I do and truly believe that the value that Amazon has created and continues to create for all stakeholders has been a net positive, I'm also aware and concerned about some of the negative impacts that the growth of Amazon has on society, competitors, and the climate. 
I am a shareholder on Amazon and have a long-term time horizon, but I would like to know what will happen to my shares of Amazon if the company were forced to spin off some of its business units. Would I receive shares of the new company? If so, how many shares would I receive? And what will happen to the value of the existing shares that I own? This is a great question, Jordan. Um, First of all, I applaud that you're you know, you're both engaged and and concerned. Um, you're certainly not alone. There's been a lot of discussion around Amazon's contributions to the world and both the positive and the negative. Um, and you raise a really interesting question because Amazon is one of those companies that's under increased regulatory scrutiny right now. So there is a chance that Amazon will be forced to break up and and uh, its independent its units right now that are in a conglomerate would be become independent. So let's talk about what would happen. Let's say that that does happen, or and I think this is honestly a little bit more likely here, Jordan, that Amazon on its own, decides that it wants to split off certain portions of its business into independent units like AWS, which is the cloud computing unit, becomes an independent company and it separates from the main Amazon.com. Were that to happen, there would be a splitting of the equity. Now, how that's determined and you know how much you would get, that would kind of be determined by the terms of the the separation, and there would be a lot of work with the SEC and figuring this out. But you would get a stake equivalent to your your overall stake in Amazon.com today would be divvied up in a way. So nothing would happen. It's not like the pie would suddenly become bigger or smaller. It would just get sliced. And so one slice would be, let's say, AWS. Maybe another slice would be uh, the logistics business that's competing with FedEx and UPS. And another slice is the core business, the core e-commerce business. So you still got the same pie, but it's been split for you. And so that equity would be different equity now that represents those slices. And you would hold that as as an investor. That's what you would get. And um, when we see spinoffs like this or... Um, you know, split ups. It's generally been very good for shareholders. I mean, we can go back through history and on this. Uh, when uh, the government forced Standard Oil to break up, it created a whole bunch of independent oil and gas companies around the country, and the shareholders of Standard Oil got a stake in all of those independent companies. Had you hold on to held on to all of them, boy, would have you you would have made a lot of money. Um, same thing with AT&T. When AT&T was broken up, uh, the government uh, created all the the baby bells. Uh, had you held on to all of those independent companies, uh, you would have made a lot of extra money. So, I think if you believe in Amazon here, Jordan, the best thing you could do is hold firm. If there is some kind of split up, it's probably going to be good for you over the long term. Our next question comes from Jim. What are the rules for an inherited Roth 401k? I believe I need to open up an inherited IRA and put the non-pre-tax portion in that and withdraw by the end of 10 years. For the remainder that is post-tax, can I add it to my existing Roth IRA? Do I need to take distributions at any time? 
Oh, P.S. Hoping to travel soon and send you many postcards to make up for 2020. Oh, yay. We love those postcards, even though we don't get them. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days we will. One of these days we will. Certainly by the fall, we hope. Uh, So, Jim, I have to say, first of all, I don't have a definitive answer for you because there are a lot of details about your situation that I don't know. Uh, But here are some things to consider. First of all, if you're the spouse of the person who passed away, you can just make it your own account. And once you've done that, you don't have to worry about any of the distribution rules about inherited accounts. The laws governing inherited retirement accounts were changed by the SECURE Act, so the options available to you depend somewhat on if the person who owned the account died before 2020 or in 2020 or later, and whether you were a named beneficiary in the account or you just inherited through the estate. Um, But if you're not the widowed spouse, you will definitely have to take the money out at some point. It might also be a matter, by the way, if the person who passed away was taking required minimum distributions and what they were supposed to take a distribution before they passed away. But here's what I can tell you for sure. Your options will depend somewhat on the 401k provider. So call them up and ask what they normally do in these situations. Your best bet will likely be to transfer it to a Roth IRA. And if you're not the spouse of the deceased, it will specifically need to be an inherited IRA, which has a special account titling and it should not be commingled with an existing Roth IRA that you already have. Uh, when you take money out, you won't pay a 10% early distribution penalty, even if you're not age 59 and a half. And since it's a Roth, you won't pay taxes unless the account has been open for less than five years because it still has to follow the five-year rule. Um, if after you gather more info, you're, not, you're still not sure what to do, especially when it comes to the rules regarding when you might have to take money out, um, contact a tax professional. I'd be careful about the information you find on the internet. You want to make sure it was written in 2020 or later to account for the new rules. You might start at irahelp.com, which is the website of Ed Slot, a CPA who was the guest on our March 9th show. Next question comes from Donald. My entrance into the market was the Airbnb IPO. It's nearly tripled. Should I let it ride or realize some gains? I recently added a few new positions, but currently Airbnb makes up 70% of my portfolio. Suggestions? You have an amazing problem there, Donald. I love it. That is, that's an incredible problem to have. I think, um, Donald, I'm going to encourage you to think about this maybe differently than taking some gains and more asking yourself, is it okay? Can I sleep at night? Am I comfortable with Airbnb accounting for 70% of my portfolio? And the way to think about that is, let's say Airbnb tomorrow collapsed 75%, which means that 70% of your portfolio has now become dramatically smaller. Uh, are, Are you okay with that? Because you are really pitting a lot of your wealth that you have invested in the stock market in in one business. And that does create risk. Now, if you know yourself well enough and you're going to be able to ride out the volatility over the next 10 years and you're comfortable with Airbnb occupying that much of your portfolio, then okay. I, I would say, though, um, be really honest with yourself about what would happen to you emotionally, what would happen to your financial plan if there was a dramatic sell-off in that stock and you were and you had 70% in in that one stock. I'll just say for myself here personally, Donald, I hate selling stocks, but I have sold 
when a position got to be so large that uh, it was just occupying too much and I could sell a portion of it and then redeploy that cash into some other positions. And that's worked out pretty well for me. That's one of the rules I tend to abide by as an investor. Everybody's different. I mean, your mileage may vary, but do do some soul searching, do some introspection and decide for yourself whether or not you feel comfortable having 70% of your, uh, you know, your investing worth in one stock? I think that's an important question to ask and, and kind of wrestle with. Since he's just starting out, I would say that um, I'm guessing that he doesn't have a whole lot invested at this point. Yep. So just by directing future contributions to other stocks is one way to basically offset that, I think. Um, and since he's starting out, I'm less concerned about it. If, if this were someone on the verge of retirement saying they have 70% of their portfolio in one stock, I'd be a little bit more concerned. Our next question comes from Kyle. I am 30 years old and just started a new job that offers a Roth 401k with an employer match. However, there is a vesting period of five years. I am certain I will not be at this job long enough to meet the vesting requirement. Instead of investing in their limited 401k options, should I just contribute that money to my Roth IRA with more investing options? Are there any negatives to this approach? Well, Kyle, the first thing I think you should do is check to see if a portion of the match vests each year, something like maybe 20% each year over those five years. If that's the case, then it might make sense to still participate in the plan if you expect to be there for a year or a few. If not, then just go with the Roth IRA, which, as you point out, will likely have more investment choices as well as potentially lower costs. And you're not going to have to worry about the hassle of transferring the 401k to a Roth IRA after you leave the company. Also, it's easier to get money out of a Roth IRA before age 59 and a half than it is out of a Roth 401k. Um, just in case you're curious, um, when people leave a job before being fully vested, the unvested portion of the match is placed in, the, uh, in an employer's forfeiture account, where it's then used to offset the cost of the plan. And sometimes it's allocated to uh, plan participants' accounts. So the unvested part is never wasted, but it usually goes to benefit the people who are still in the plan. There's no reason for you to do that, though, if you're not going to be there long enough. Next question comes from Andrea. Out of an abundance of caution around the election, I moved the balance of my 401k from index investments to cash, about 250000 Now I'm concerned about buying back into a market that is highly priced. Would it be better to try and wait for a correction or bear market, which some experts seem to think is due, or to dollar cast average? dollar cost average back in now? If the latter, over how many weeks or months should I buy back in? So it's really hard to, to answer this in a way that doesn't just give you personalized advice here, Andrea. And since I can't do that, um, I'm going to give you some general thoughts here. Um, it is, I appreciate that you're looking at the market and seeing that things are highly priced. You're right. Things are highly priced, and um, I, I wouldn't put too much stock into experts who are telling you when there's going to be a correction or that there will be a correction. Man, I wouldn't even put that much stock in me as an expert. In fact, I'd put like 0% stock in me as an expert. But what I would say, though, is that you are thinking correctly about, you know, what do I do with this money? I do want to get back into the market. And 
you know, what is going to keep you engaged, I think is a way to think about this. So if one way to get engaged is to like, say, set up a schedule, whatever the schedule is, it can be like once a week, I'm going to look at the resources I have access to and buy $100 of that stock. And then you just do that every week and you just repeat the pattern over and over and over again. Wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. Just like setting up a schedule that really works for you. Um, Well, first, it'll get you invested. And second, it'll help you build the habit. And more important than even just figuring out the timing is actually building the habit and staying in the game over the longest term, and you've got a lot of money to deploy. So I think you have a a wide range of options here. But the two things I'd look at is how do you set up a schedule that works for you, that's really easy, that you like, and then second, helps you build the habit of investing regularly and just staying with it over a long period of time. That's No matter what's happening in the market right now, that's going to help you the most over the really long term. Great question, though, Andrea. I'll just cite a Vanguard study that I'm sure I've mentioned before. And it basically looked at, was it better to invest a lump sum all at once or put it gradually in the market over 12 months? And historically speaking, uh, in two-thirds of the time, it was better to invest a lump sum, one-third to put it in gradually. Um, So that's just history. The stock market, on average, is up three out of four years. Um, I certainly, uh, like Tim, appreciate the fact that the market is highly valued. Um, that makes me nervous. But I also know for me personally, I am, I am not going to need my retirement money for at least another 15 years. And I'm fairly confident that even if I put money in now, like I will my next paycheck, because money will go into my 401k, I'm pretty sure that money is going to still be profitable because I'm not going to touch it for another 15 years at least. I feel like someone needs to plead with Andrea to to never cash out her 401k like that again. Yeah. I mean, look. It, like, please, it, please, Andrea, please. Just right. Of course. Yeah. Just stay in the game. I mean, nothing, nothing really amplifies your returns over the longest term than just time. Like, what does it take to be – I mean, I know – Nobody who manages money professionally wants to hear this, but what makes you a superstar investor? Time. That's that's it. Like time. Time does it. I mean, time you're, in the market, not time timing the market. the market. Time right. in the market. Hundred percent. Like your your intellectual horsepower and picking a great stock. Yeah, that's amazing. Like that's good, and we love that. But way more powerful than that is your wherewithal to just. Even staying in the game with a lousy stock is going to beat somebody who is amazing at picking a stock and cashes out after a year. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've been working at The Fool for just over a decade now, it turns out. And so I have seen my fair share of elections. And every election, people, just like pundits, reporters are like, well, this guy got elected, so the stock market's going to tank. This guy got elected, so the stock market's going to go up. And it's never right. It's never right. And you just can't predict what the market is going to do based on who is sitting in the White House. And um, I've been through enough of these that I've seen it personally and experienced it personally to know that this is true. I, my favorite, this is, this is my favorite 
um, pop culture reference that illustrates this point. There's an old show, one of my favorites, called The West Wing, and there's a scene in which the chief of staff, Leo McGarry, asks two financial pundits, and he says, all right, where's the market going to be over the next year? And one guy says, up whatever amount, and, you know, and, and so forth. And the other guy says, down 400 points. And then he looks at both of them and says, about a year from now, one of you is going to look really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Or they won't. Are you right? Like you can, it's amazing how you can be a financial pundit or expert and just be wrong for 10 years. Right. Like just be wrong that the market, the market's going down this year. The market's going down this year. Guess what? It didn't go down for a decade. <laughs> so like, it's one of the, one of these fantastic careers that you can enter into where you could be flat out wrong for 10 years and you still get gigs. Like how That's does that it. work? That's the only reason I still have a job. Yeah. Oh, bro. You're right about lots of stuff. All right. Our Once next question while. comes from Aaron. I was on a financial literacy call for work and the speaker stated Roth IRAs were not subject to estate taxes. I pointed out that Roth IRA money was not subject to income tax, but if the value of the estate is over the federal limit, the Roth money should be subject to the estate tax. The speaker then said, just omit the Roth IRA from the estate. If the estate is over the federal limit, only money in the estate will be subject to the estate tax. Can you omit assets from your estate, thus not paying estate taxes on them? If your Roth IRA is part of your estate, will estate taxes apply if the estate value is over the federal limit? Uh, so first off, Aaron, uh, when it comes to estate planning, see a qualified, experienced estate planning attorney. Don't rely on goofball podcast hosts. But let's <laughs> oh, talk a little bit about... You guys are killing me. One of you is like, don't listen to me talk about what the market's going to do. And then the next was like, well, don't listen to this upcoming financial advice for your estate. But here we go. But Hashtag here we go. goofball podcast. Hashtag, there you go. Hashtag at least pretend to know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have I have some facts. I have facts. About okay. That. All right. Thank so, for you. example, one fact is that federal limit, right? So it's the estate exemption in 2021 is 11.7 million dollars per person, and essentially twice that for married couples if the deceased spouse's executor made a portability election on the timely filed estate tax return. Sound confusing? It is. That's why you need to get an attorney. Um, so generally speaking, most people, when they hear that, they feel like, okay, I don't have to worry about paying estate taxes on the federal level. And that's generally true. Um, it is important to know that the amount was essentially doubled in 2017, and it's adjusted for each year for inflation. But in 2026, the 2017 law expires, and the exemption drops down again to about $5 million, And then there's talks of bringing it down even further. Plus, 17 states in the District of Columbia le levy separate estate and or inheritance taxes, often with lower exemption amounts. So if you do have or potentially could have a few million dollars at some point, it is worth paying attention to estate taxes. Okay. So what goes into valuing the estate? Well, it's just about everything someone owned. So it's stuff, homes, cars, life insurance policies, which is why it's important to pay attention to who is the owner of a policy, and accounts. And that includes Roth IRAs. Now, some people might try to get people out of their estates by putting them in irrevocable trusts. It has to be irrevocable. But as far as I know, you cannot put an IRA in a trust while you're alive. You could make a trust the beneficiary of your IRA, and then it goes into a trust after you pass away. 
but that doesn't get it out of your estate. Uh, but I'm just a goofball podcast host. So if there's a lawyer out there who knows some workaround, please let us know. But I think generally speaking, what you were told on this um, financial wellness call was inaccurate. Sounds like Aaron was looking for that kind of answer from you. So I think I think Aaron knew the answer. He just wanted validation. Yeah, yeah. From a goofball podcast, you came. <laughs> I can't wait for the T-shirt. I'm waiting for the T-shirt <laughs> that has Bro's face on it that says "Goofball Podcast Host." One of these Take my things. money advice. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. I've done the research, so if I'm wrong, <laughs> let's have that let as, me know. That's our new disclaimer for every <laughs> podcast episode. Hey, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe, Maybe we're but, wrong. We could always spe- be wrong. Specifically when it comes to estate planning, because yeah. it's it's very complicated and the laws are different uh, from state to state. So whatever. We'll just see. What, we'll see if anyone emails and says, bro, you're wrong. We'll see. Maybe we're wrong. So whatever. That's the show. All right. Now, we'll, here we we'll go. We'll give you a refund of everything you paid. Yeah, you get your money back. All right. Yeah. Next question comes from Colin. With the retail investing world suddenly thrust to the center stage of pop culture in the last couple weeks, I've been hearing more and more about the options trading world. I know, especially at 28 years old, that my greatest asset when it comes to investing is time and the ability to weather the short-term volatilities of the market. My question is this. Do options have any place in the foolish investment strategy? Is there a responsible way to incorporate options investing into a buy and hold investment portfolio? Since the expiration of options contracts removes that most precious asset, time, and the ability to continue to hold on to things through the highs and the lows, my feeling is the answer is no, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the matter. Colin, let me tell you, Tim's going (laughs) to teach you a thing or two about the other side of options trades. Well, here comes the answer from the other goofball podcast host. <laughs> um, no, you're you are. Uh, it, this is a great question, Colin, and your instincts are right. For most investors, options are a bad strategy, and and one of the things that really gets me hot under the collar is the the amount of marketing of options as a tool to young investors that I've seen from from different brokerages and just in the in the wider media I think that is irresponsible so I applaud you for sort of thinking about this thinking rationally about it you're absolutely right for most investors it is um, it, it's not something you need and it's something you should actively avoid now having said that, there are a couple of option strategy, strategies that we think are pretty foolish that you can use once you have a lot of experience under your belt. Um, and I really want to stress that. Give yourself a couple of years, build up a portfolio of common stocks, keep some cash to the side, and do a lot of studying of what uh, what options, how options work, uh, Take a look at option pricing, understand what your broker requires, read the disclosures, all of that good stuff. But here are two that you could use. The first is what's called a covered call. So let's say you have a a stock that you own. And I think it's best, to be honest, a covered call is best if you have a stock that you actively loathe. I mean, really, one that you hate and you would be happy to sell. Um, so let's say it's like a cruise line. 
And the option, let's say it's for a month ahead or two months ahead, and that option is going to pay you a certain amount of money um, to say like, hey, this contract says if the price hits X, then this uh, this these shares that you own, these hundred shares, are going to be called away from you. You're going to sell them at that price, and we're going to pay you for the right for for that contract. So that's called a covered call. And so if you would be happy to get rid of the stock at a certain price, a covered call can be a really interesting strategy. And what's nice about them is if you have this stock and you're not selling it and you want to earn a little income while you're waiting to sell it, a covered call can just be renewed. Like you have it for a month, you get paid, the stock doesn't get called away. You write another one, you get paid again, and you keep getting paid until you sell it. The problem is if you write a covered call on a business that you really like and you want to hold for 15 years and it gets called away, the buyer's remorse that you may experience could be intense. So don't do that. Don't write a covered call on a stock that you would really like to hold and you could see yourself holding for 15 years. Now, here's another strategy you could use. Let's say you think a stock that you really want to own is very expensive. You could do what's called writing a put. A put is a an option that creates profit when a stock falls. If you write a put, essentially you're selling, you're selling the contract that says if a stock falls to a certain price, I'm going to buy it. I'll be responsible for buying it at that price. So let's say you write a put on a stock you really like. The price is 10% lower. If you write that put and you get paid, you get paid a certain amount of money, and then if the stock falls to that price, now you have to buy the shares. Well, hey, you were thinking about stop buying the stock anyway. So now you got paid to wait for a better price. Um, it doesn't always work out. But it's a way for you to maybe reduce the cost basis for buying into a stock that you really wanted to own anyway. So covered calls, sell them when you think that you know a stock that you own, you would be happy to get rid of because you loathe that sucker and you want to make a little money in, in the short term. Writing a put if you'd like to buy a stock, but you'd really like a slightly better price and you'd like to get paid to wait for a better price. Those are two foolish options investing strategies, but please don't try this until you've really done your homework. But there are but there are ways to use options foolishly, Colin. So thanks for the question. Yeah, I would say that my husband loves foolish options. Like he loves both of the strategies you just said, but he also loves sitting in the basement for four hours every Sunday afternoon and researching them. Like options is not something that you should just dip your toe in. It's something that you probably should do if you actually have a love of doing it, like a massively intrinsic value of just looking at options. Like as if it's, if it's something that bores you, like fine, get out of there. Don't worry about it. Like I'm not I, spending I, four hours staring in front of the computer, looking at options trades on a hey, Sunday. Me neither. Come on. Me neither. Goofy, goofy podcast host, goofy not doing podcast it. Host. You can go listen to my husband's podcast, Options from the Basement. <laughs> <laughs> That's his podcast coming to you soon. All it is is just keys clacking on a keyboard for four hours. <laughs> All right. And then me yelling, lunch, dinner. Next question comes from Mark. 
Does the wash sale rule apply if you sell and buy back a stock in different brokerages? For example, I sell Microsoft at a loss in TD Ameritrade, then buy it back in Webull. Uh, so, Mark, sorry, you can't get around it that way. You uh, it can't, you violate the wash sale rule if you buy it back at another brokerage, if you buy it back in an IRA, your 401k, if your spouse buys it back in another account. The IRS has thought through all these ways around it, and you can't do it. So your option is to um, either A, just stick with the stock, B, take the loss, but then wait 30 days to buy the stock back, or in the meantime, buy something that um, is a similar type of investment, but not the exact same one. So just an example, since you used Microsoft, you could, for that 30 days, own the technology sector spider, XLK, which has 20% of its assets in Microsoft. So you would think that that would perform somewhat similarly to Microsoft over the course of a month. Um, but generally speaking, I think when it comes to tax loss harvesting, it's probably better just to wait the 30 days um, but there are some ways uh, to have similar investments, but all the ways to to try to really get around the rule, the, the IRS has already figured those out. Ugh. Including options, by the way. You can't put an option on Microsoft either. Oh. Yeah. Oh, man. I would just see it, just going to add quickly. So I'm reading a book and I'm in, interviewing uh, the author, William Green, on, on Motley Fool Live here as, as a it, it will have aired by the time this podcast goes live. The book is Richer, Wiser, Happier. And one of the traits of all of the greatest super investors that he interviews is simplicity. So just if you can stomach it, Mark, uh, just go for the simple. Just wait. I mean, if, if you really want to emulate the investors that got really, really rich the one thing that you will learn reading this book is that they kept it as simple as humanly possible. So go for simplicity, man. Did that guy steal our purpose statement at The Motley Fool, make the world smarter, happier, and richer? Came close, did. didn't he? I think Came he did. Came close. Should Came call close. him out on that. As, ask for some residuals or something off that book. All right. Know it. Next question comes from Esty. I am a member of Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, and I get a lot of recommendations that I'm excited to buy. The problem is that as I keep buying the new picks every month, I am accumulating too many stocks to keep track of. How do I go about adding new positions while keeping the amount of stocks to a manageable amount? Bro, I think you're going to start, but I think Tim will probably also have some thoughts on this. Yes, in fact, because uh, we've answered questions similar to this, but I, I chose this one again because I love getting the input of people like Tim, who's been an, uh, a full writer, contributor, analyst for a long time. So I'll just say what I often say, and that is, if you are not yet an experienced investor and you're part of a Motley Fool service, I think it's important to basically follow the service to the T. And if you have something like Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, and you're part of those for years, you're, you are going to accumulate you know, well over 100 stocks. Um, but that means just staying on top of the recommendations, staying to, on top of the sell guidance, because there will be sell guidance as well. Um, and it does mean you'll be very diversified. But because you're basically, by belonging to these services, you, you have a team of analysts behind you. You don't have to stay on top of them quite as much. Now, as you do this for a few years, if you become a more experienced investor, then maybe you could do more picking and choosing and whittle them down to the stocks that you think have the most promise. Um, but again, if you're not quite experienced yet, I think it's important to stick to the service as closely as possible because I've come across the stories of many people who sort of pick and choose 
And then they miss out on some of the best stocks that we've recommended, largely because they've also already gone up very highly and, and people feel like, oh, I've already missed out. I'm not going to buy Amazon or whatever it was because it's gone up so much. But those are my thoughts. Tim, what do you say? I, I agree with that. And I would say, um, try, I mean, SD, try not to make any kind of either or decision here. So if if you're getting just a ton of stuff and it feels like information overload, if you could automate like bro is talking about and saying every time I get a new recommendation, I'm just going to put $100 into that and you automate that. And then as you grow, as you read, as you learn more from us, maybe you listen to Motley Fool Live, you listen to Motley Fool Answers, other Motley Fool podcasts, and you start growing in your interest and your knowledge, then maybe you can concentrate a little bit more on, say, 10 to 15 stocks that you actually really want to follow and get to know better as businesses. Even though your portfolio may be like 150 stocks, the reason I like this strategy is because it allows you to just increase your odds of getting the bananas return you would get from one of those generational outperformers. Like the more stocks you have, the more likely it is you're going to get one of those generational outperformers. When you have fewer stocks, your odds are lower. So you do want more stocks. That is a good thing. Like what the research says going back, it's about 100 years now, is that in a portfolio held for that long, the basically 100% of the outperformance comes down to less than 4% of the stocks in that portfolio. So more stocks, better. So allow yourself to have a big portfolio. But as you grow in your knowledge, in your interest, decide like what few stocks you want to spend some time with and learn about, and then let us take care of the rest. That's a great way to give yourself the best odds of winning over a really long period of time and enjoy the process of investing over a really long period of time because you want both. Like we want you to enjoy it and we want you to win. Like smarter, happier and richer. That's what we want. So yeah, try not to make it any kind of either or decision SD. Have a big portfolio, just party on and and then maybe, you know, concentrate a little bit later on. Well, We'll just end on that party on note then. Tim, thanks so much for joining us this week. Let's uh, let's not wait another 17 years to have you on, okay? Seriously. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you very much, Allison and bro. It was a good time. Yeah, so let's have a disclaimer. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what these guys have to say. I mean, come on. <laughs> Maybe they're right. They don't know. I don't know. No one knows. The show is edited springily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.